The Defense Department has issued a request for information on a study of finance. Three years in development, the study is supposed to take a comprehensive look at financing and the financial health of the defense industrial base. Many contractors think the study is too narrow in scope. For what DOD needs to do to improve it, we turn to the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, this study, first of all, give us the background on what is going on here and what's in that RFI. Well, thanks so much for having me, Tom. This RFI came out about a month ago, and and comments have already been due. This study is three years, as you mentioned, in the making. The Government Accountability Office recommended back in 2019 that the Department of Defense undertake a comprehensive study of its contract finance policies and programs. That would be the first comprehensive study since 1985, when it was a defense finance and investment study that came out. And so in the last 30 years or so, the landscape has changed quite a bit. So we were in agreement that this study needed to happen. Unfortunately, the RFI focused on engaging industry on specific questions related to their financial health and access to financing. It did not ask questions that we thought were very pertinent to how the market has changed dramatically since 1985. The market changing meaning? I mean the financial markets. The financial markets since 1985 have undergone dramatic changes in the terms of the types of finance available to companies, products companies versus services companies. This study appears to look very closely at financing for products companies and not so much services companies. The differentiation is this, Tom, when services companies incur costs, they do it quite a bit before they have to invoice them for the government. Products companies, it's a little bit more straightforward in terms of how liquid they can be in terms of financing and when they can invoice and get payment from the government. For services companies, oftentimes um, those are long lead um, workforce dependent costs that they incur and they incur those months, sometimes years before they get to invoice them to the government. And so that is something that we were also taking a, a hard look at. Right. So then you would urge the Pentagon to do what then with the study? We've asked them to broaden the scope quite a bit. You know, this is a this is a two-phase study that they contracted out to academic institutions and other you know folks who can conduct these kinds of deep analyses. We've asked them to go ahead and broaden the scope of it beyond just simply what is your access to financing industry and instead look at how they are structured alongside the market, how the government and the market can work together to ensure the health of the defense industrial base. One other item that we always point out, Tom, is that the government tends not to reward growth. And this is important for small businesses and mid-sized businesses who are doing business in the government space you know, you have set-asides for small businesses. They do very well. They get uh, sized out of their, their small uh, status, and then they either get acquired by larger companies, they get, they get merged with companies, or they simply go out of business. The other alternative is that they go back to small size status. So we've encouraged the Department of Defense to think hard about how can they better reward growth. Um, if you're talking about encouraging small businesses to do better. In many small business owners' minds, that means they, they want to grow. They want to stay in this business. How can they encourage that kind of uh, health in the defense industrial base? And how can they help growth? Because if you grow out of small business, people either, as you say, sell the company or a lot of them sell it and then go start another one. 
And so there's this constant seeding of the same field. If that's what the small business owners want to do, I think that's great. There are some small business owners who do grow out of their small size status and want to stay in business without being acquired. And we've encouraged through our mid-sized company working group we have at the Professional Services Council to think about how they can put incentives in place to keep mid-sized companies viable going forward. And that are things like during the evaluation process, can you offer extra credit or points if you are a mid-sized company? We're not arguing for a mid-sized company set aside because that just moves the the goalposts, right? You have small business and the mid-sized business and, and that kind of thing. We are encouraging creative ways, for example, during the evaluation process to reward mid-sized companies, because that is also a source of innovation that you might not get out of um, other segments of the of the industry. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She's vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council. And another topic which seems to be rather controversial now is the non-displacement of qualified workers under service contracts. My basic question, if the government switches contractors to do continuation of certain work and the employees from the prior contractor get right of first refusal with the new contractor. My question is, what if they switched contractors because they didn't like those people and didn't want them on the contract anymore? That's a great question. The way the the executive order and the resulting Department of Labor proposed regulations read is that these are for qualified workers. And and so the definition of what um, that means, what if it's the same or similar work, those definitions are critically important to how we move forward with this. This was a policy that was put in place during the Obama administration. It was repealed. The attempt is to put it in place again. There are a few notable changes since this was the, the name of the game back in, back in the Obama administration. This new proposed rule does leave some discretion up to employers about who they can bring on. One word of caution, though, Tom. We are talking a lot about moving away from lowest price technically acceptable during the bid process. That means basically that, you know, if, if you can meet the requirements and you can undercut others on pricing, you should be awarded the contract. We, we don't like that model. We, we prefer best value. What is the bang for the buck that you're going for and what can companies bring to the table? It encourages companies to offer innovations and new ways of thinking. The problem that you face with this non-displacement of qualified workers under services contracts is that you're still encouraging bidders to bid low. And then you're faced with a situation in which you've got incumbent workers, workers under the incumbent contractor, who might actually have to take a pay cut to go work for the new awardee. Now, again, it's a right of first refusal. In certain job markets, workers might not have a choice. They might, they might have to go to the new contractor. And so this creates an, an interesting disturbance in the, in the supply demand for qualified workers. And so we are looking at this set of proposed rules of the Department of Labor comments are due August 15th. We've already asked for an extension. If you if you print out the actual Word document, it's 160 pages of changes to labor regulations. So I would argue that we do need a little bit more time. And so hopefully the Department of Labor will, will help us out with that. 160 pages. Now people know what their weekend reading is going to look like. <laughs> and just a final question on the Competitiveness Act, U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, which started out as $52 billion dollars. For the semiconductor industry, now $56 billion, plus there's another $250 billion of amendments. There's one big thing that's not there, according to the council. Yeah, so we are supportive and we are encouraging House and Senate leadership to quickly pass what has been called USICA, as you pointed out, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, or 
America Competes Act, this has been several bills battling for attention over the last year or so. We are supportive of this bill, but it is missing something, and that is the tax amortization schedules for R&D investments. Since the 1950s, U.S. companies have been able to immediately deduct any R&D investments, take the full value of that deduction in, in the year in which those costs were incurred. This encouraged the companies to take that savings and reinvest it in R&D. It was a way to infuse their R&D efforts with cash. A few years ago, under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, to create revenue for the federal government, they decided they were going to amortize those costs, R&D investments over the five years. And that has had a stultifying effect. Uh, It just recently took place. And there are studies that say by reducing R&D spending in this way, it'll be four, over $4 billion annually for the first five years, more than $10 billion annually in the second set of five years and beyond. And so that is taking R&D investment out of the pipelines. Now, I'll tell you, Tom, what China does, not that we necessarily need to, to pattern ourselves off of China, but they offer something called a super deduction, which is they allow companies to deduct two times the amount of their eligible R&D investment. And so that is infusing money for R&D back into the Chinese system that we're just not doing. And so we've encouraged congressional leaders to include a delay to this tax amortization of R&D investment that will help us keep more R&D investment in the system and hopefully advance U.S. innovation. So if you put the R&D tax deduction back in there, then maybe you wouldn't need the other $300 billion subsidizing everything else. It is, you know, out of all of the things that, that made it into this bill, we were saddened to see that this did not on the Senate side, and we're hoping during this process that they can put it back in. All right. Well, from your lips to senators' ears, <laughs> Stephanie Castro is vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all but, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same. 
uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company, Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. You made it. Here. Finally. Checked out of office to check into the sweet views of that place you've always wanted to go. You know the one. It's nice. Even the kids like it. This place is so cool. And they never like it. Mom, can we go to the pool? Look at that. Not even asking for the Wi-Fi. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.